0: I'd like you to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, and we'll continue our study on deliverance. Deliverance. For me to say there is a lot of demonic activity on this earth is to speak the obvious. There's more than just a lot of demonic activity. It's everywhere. It seems to be prevailing, and it seems to be increasing, at least to me must be the devil, as the Bible says, knoweth that he has but a short time, and his wickedness is increasing. Evil men and impostors, the Bible says, seducing people, misleading people will increase in the last days. But concerning the devil, here's one verse in the Bible concerning Jesus and the devil that applies not only to what he did, but to us living in this world. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. 1 John 3, 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, he did that. We've already looked at that. He spoiled in Colossians 2. He spoiled principalities and powers, and he triumphed over them there is nothing left that Jesus needs to do to defeat the devil on our behalf, because the victory that he brought, the power that he has, and the victory that he wrought in Ephesians 3 says, he did it for and gave the authority to the church to do the same thing that he did. As the Father has sent me, Jesus said, so send I you. If he came to destroy the works of the devil, we also should be doing the same thing, especially in our families, in our lives. In every area that we have been weak, that we have given up in, that we have been lazy in, we should take what has been given to us and use it as a weapon against the devil so that we triumph daily also. God didn't save us to be defeated. God didn't save us to be overcome. He said we are to overcome. In fact, right before he went to the cross, Jesus said, Be of good cheer, I have overcome. In this world, you're going to have tribulation and trouble. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And the world, as the Bible says, lies in darkness. Jesus calls the devil the power of darkness, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit in Ephesians 2, that works in all rebellious people. Whether we're rebellious or we see rebels in this world, Behind all of that is the working of a spirit. It's called a spirit of disobedience, rebellion. The Bible said in the last days, lawlessness shall increase. And while we speak that and say that, it's only when you begin to see it and see how close it is and how easily it is for most people to be lawless to have disregard for what they have heard, for what is right, and to just go do as they please and do whatever they think. Maybe they think, well, well, God will forgive me anyway. It's just this indifference to God. That's the work of the devil because in that way he snares you and makes a captive out of you. And speaking of that, Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 26, he said, And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. And don't forget what you've heard many times, that the devil does really go about like a roaring lion. He's looking for those who are not paying attention. He's looking those who are weak and given in to their fleshly appetites and desires. He does whatever he can to do three things, to kill, and to steal, and destroy. If he can ruin your life, he'll ruin it. If he can shut your eyes to where you never identify that he's behind what you're going through, you'll never deal with him, and he'll continue to have his way even though Jesus defeated him at the cross. But if we don't understand that or know those things, if we don't study those things, he'll defeat us with this book on our side, all the contents of it for us, but this is not for the natural man. This is for God's people. And yet, if we ignore it, if we set it aside, if we just read the good parts about forgiveness and the joy of the Lord and not really pay attention to make your calling and election sure and bearing your cross and overcoming daily, if we don't pay attention to that, you'll find the devil mingles himself in your life and twists and distorts things and He'll make you moody and grumbly and irritable and angry and fussy. and He'll cater to your baser desires. Anything he can to cause God to have to judge you. How many of you believe that God still judges sin? Not only does God still judge sin, but the devil knows too that God must judge sin. Sin is just turning away from God. Sin actually is doing your own thing. And he that sinneth, what do we read in 1 John 3? He that sinneth is what? Is of the devil. All sin comes by the devil. All of it. He is the author of sin. Now, last time I started this, we said there are four elements to the believer's authority that if we're going to deal with the devil, Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. If we're going to deal with the same devil that he dealt with, we have to know what our authority is. Not just memorize and read little cards every day about it, but we must know these things. These things have to become a part of your thinking, a part of your life. It's just not a practice of Christian thinking. It is arming yourself with the weapons of our warfare. You know we have them, don't you? That we are in a war. That we don't wrestle with people. We're wrestling with things you can't see. Principalities and powers. Unseen forces behind all forms of evil. That's who we deal with. That's what we have to deal with. The first thing I mentioned last week as a part of your weapons was the word of God. We must lace our meetings our studies, our exercise in spiritual matters. It has to be word-oriented. We can't go by how you feel or what you think or don't you think. It has to be the word. This word has to become, again, a part of our thinking. It was said clearly in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, we are no longer to be like the world. You know why? Because of this, and you can test yourself. If any man be in Christ, he or she is a new creature. If you're in Christ. And if you're in Christ, old things, what you used to do, you no longer do. Because you've turned around. You have been born again. And by that, you have been born from darkness to light. And your life is like a baby. It begins all over again. Everything is new. The old has passed away. All things become new. It means you're converted And if you've never been converted and turned around and walked away from the old life, then you're not saved. Now, see, that sounds hard, and we don't like to say that because people don't like to hear that, but it's the truth. It really is the truth. And the devil would like for us to take the sting out of it if we could, so people feel better about being here. After all, church is where you go to feel good about yourself. And yet one of the grave responsibilities of ministry is to warn the people, show them their sins, and show them a way out of their sins. And if we don't do that, then we're guilty of letting death take its course. But the Word of God is so essential. Jesus said when the devil came and tempted him, he said, It is written. It is written. It is written. He didn't appeal to his own person. He made himself of no reputation. He did what he wants you and I to do, to humble ourselves to the word of God and trust in it and rely on it. And when the devil comes around, this is the one single weapon that you have that is greater than any other weapon you have. So powerful is his word that he created the worlds by it. By the breath of his mouth, Psalm 33 says, by the breath of his mouth the worlds were created. It was by the word he spoke that a dead man came to life a word, not any other kind of performance, no show, just a word. And whenever he spoke, it is written. He was showing us that you need to stand on that word. The centurion said to Jesus, "That speak the word only. Speak the word only. The psalmist said, hide this word in your heart that you might not sin against God. It's that easy. The one thing, the one refuge we all have to keep sin out of our life is the word. And yet there's such a woeful neglect today in nice churches, good people. I'm not talking about ugly, bad people. They're all superior to me. I'm just saying that there's one thing that God has given us that will put us over, make us victorious, and that's the word of God. But if we neglect it, if we don't give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, then we can't win this battle. You can't overcome in this life without the Word. You can't do it. If you're going to be an overcomer, you have to know what the Bible says. That's your weapon. That's what you use against him. If you're not paying attention now and you're not hiding the Word in your heart, you're giving the Holy Spirit nothing to make good in your life. Remember, the Bible says the Word of God is the sword Of whom? of the Spirit. Did y'all know that? Ephesians 6, part of our warfare is that taken to you the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If you don't hide the Word in your heart, what does the Spirit use to prompt you to use against the devil? If we're not Word-oriented people, and I've heard a lot of things said about people like us, you know, y'all worship the Word, no. Unless you want to call, we worship the Logos, Jesus Christ, who became flesh in John 1. It's just what he said is so necessary and so vital in just daily living to overcome and be victorious and enjoy life, the abundant life that he promised, that if we don't take advantage of the opportunities he gives us, we're defeating ourselves. Like I've said so often, I'll keep nagging if I have to. Too many people miss too much church miss too much. You say, oh, I'll catch up. I hope you do. I don't know that people do. It's none of my business. I just know that I know why I'm here. I know how important this is, and I have a testimony in my life like many of you. I know how this works. In the dark hours of the night when everything is going wrong and nothing seems to be right, there's refuge in this Word. The second thing we mentioned about another element of our Authority in Christ is the name of Jesus. That God said in Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 that God has given Jesus a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus things in heaven and earth under the earth everywhere shall bow their knee. Because that name commands authority. It is a name that God chose for himself. That was the name he said to give to Jesus. It was his name. Jesus, it means Savior. And when you speak the name of Jesus, you are speak in a name that was given to you also, that you use against the devil. But you got to know why it works. It works because God said to use it. He said, in my name. How many times do you suppose Scripture says, in my name, in the name of Jesus, go you into all the world? Or Mark 16, he said, and these signs shall follow those who believe in my name in my name it's the authority that we have his name i told the story one time some of my older kids were making too much noise and in a family with more than four or five older kids never ever submit to younger kids they don't do it in fact if the older kids are having a good time a younger kid comes there and says anything they just throw them out in the hallway and shut the door and get out of here But things change when the little one goes into the big one's room armed with a word from dad. They like that. They're a little swagger in that. Hey, listen up, big brother, big sister. Dad said, knock it off. What are you going to do with that? Throw him out of the room? Dad sent him. Well, you know, not so humorously, but has not God commissioned us to go into all the world? Has he not given us something to use against our enemy? And the one name that is supreme above all names that the devil must listen to is the name of Jesus unless your life is not in harmony with what that name stands for. Remember that story about those sons of one Siva, this priest, and they took it upon themselves to call over another man to cast demons out of it and these Exorcists, they called themselves, said to this man that had a demon in him, he said, I adjure thee by Jesus whom Paul preaches to come out of him. And the Spirit spoke up. The demon inside the man using the man's vocal cords, I've heard this many times, I've heard these things a lot. The Spirit said, Jesus I know, Paul I'm acquainted with, who are you? He was using the name, but he didn't have any right to it because he didn't live according to that name. And so you can't just say these are little formulas that you use to go into all the world or "Or go into your community or, or go into your house and just say, okay, I adjure thee in the name of Jesus, you leave my child alone. It won't work like that. I'm talking about the way we live, that God shows us how to live, and these words become settled in our heart so that we're quickened by this word to deal with adversaries and deal with our problems. It's what the Spirit brings up, and when you do it that way, it works. Thirdly tonight is the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. That's a weapon that you have. Now, it's not something you carry around with you. You don't carry that around because there's no such thing as that. The blood of Jesus is a weapon of your warfare because of what it declares in Scripture about Jesus, of what it did, what the blood of Jesus did on your behalf. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins. Now, redemption has to do with deliverance from the power and the consequences of sin. Redeemed, ransomed back, bought back. One writer wrote it this way, the recalling of captives from captivity through the payment of a ransom. I used to liken this The redemption that we have in Christ. If I use a top value stamp store, most of you wouldn't have a clue what a top value stamp is. But those of you that are date yourself, remember there was a time when you bought anything, you'd get top value stamp. Or I guess buying in certain places, you'd get stamps. You buy a hundred dollars worth of something, they would tear out of a book so many stamps as a reward for buying that much. Then they gave you little books to put those stamps in. When you got a book full, you had a book of stamps. When you had enough books, you could go into a top-value redemption center. Redemption. Here was all these things you could have. Today, it's like the Speedy Rewards card. If you buy $8,000 worth of gas, you get $20 worth free. <laughs> I have $9,600. Plus points right now. It's worth $10 worth of gas. It's better than no dollars worth of gas. But anyway, you walk into the store and here was you and me. We were in this redemption store held captive by the owner. He had a right to us. Our father, Adam, gave him the right to us. We were snared. We were in our sins. God gave us a law to show us what sin was. We wouldn't even known that we were sinners unless God had spoken do and don't do. And when we saw what do and don't do meant, we realized that we have been one of the didn't do's. We're caught in our sin. We're captured. We're captive. We couldn't get out of here. There's nothing that we could do to get out of here. Once you're in, you're in. You're done. You're caught. You're doomed. And redemption means that one day Jesus walked in. With all that it took to get you out of there. If it took a thousand books, he brought them in and laid them out there, 1,000 books. And when he laid that price down to ransom you out of there, there was absolutely nothing the devil could do to keep you anymore. He walked in and he said, Here's the ransom, which was his blood. He said, I want Hamilton. And the devil said, what would you want him for? And everybody else said, yeah. But he said, I have a plan for him. And he picked you and you and all of you, whoever wants to be in on this. And he cleared the shelves. Isn't that good? He went in there and he bought you and he took you out there as his purchased possession, purchased by the price that he paid because you couldn't pay it, He rescued you, he redeemed you, he bought you back and took you out of there, and you are no longer destined to be held captive anymore by the devil. Now, if you don't pay attention, the devil can seduce you, mislead you, distort the word. Next thing you know, he captures you. He has no right to you. But you don't know that if you don't pay attention to the word of God. If you equip yourself and arm yourself with the word... The devil tries this stuff. You can say, oh, no, it is written by his stripes. I am healed. And what God laid on Jesus for me, you've got no right to put on me. I've been delivered from you. I've been redeemed. Redeemed, the song said, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by baptismal membership into the church. Redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Redeemed by the blood of the lamb at some point between here and heaven, that has got to mean something to you. It's got to have an effect upon your thinking. It has to bear witness to your heart that you are special to God. Because by his blood, the agony, the difficulty, the awfulness of that day, it all happened for one reason. God wanted to save you And the only way he could save you was be for somebody to take your place. We call that substitutionary atonement. In the Old Testament law, a sinner came before the Lord. He couldn't save himself, but he brought a lamb, something in his place. Now, I deserve to die, and the lamb that I'm offering must die in my place. This is the way it works. This was the message of the law. All men are declared sinners. And we could in no wise escape from the sinful sentence that was over us. We're destined for punishment. And God prepared a lamb. You know the story. I hope you do. We'll keep telling it. God prepared for himself a lamb to be offered in place of sinful people like us so that where we were destined to die, he gives us life. But the devil couldn't keep him either because he was sinless himself. We got redeemed. We have been redeemed. He said, we were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Sin has no right to me anymore unless I give sin right. I've been redeemed. I pray that you have too. Now look at Colossians 1. Two books over. Colossians 1. Verse 13. This whole section of Colossians 1 is so rich in good reading good meditated reading, things to think about. This whole first chapter, all of it. Verse 13, who hath, does your Bible say hath? Who hath delivered us from the power or the authority of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his son. Has it been done? Does he need to do it again? It has been done. It is forever settled in heaven. It's done. It is finished, Jesus said. In whom, verse 14, in whom, again, we have redemption through his blood, even even the forgiveness of our sins. You may struggle with certain sins in your life. You can call it weakness if you want to. You may struggle with some things, and you may give in to it awful easy, and you may wonder if you're ever going to get this. I'll tell you one thing. While you may struggle with some things, there was nothing that you ever did or could do that Jesus didn't deliver you from. It has no right to you. The devil can make you think you're doomed. He'll do that, but if God can get your attention, you'll be set free. Remember 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. Now, here's a condition, like we had a condition a while ago using the name of Jesus. Look at this condition in 1 John chapter 1. Here's a condition you have to understand in order for the power that is in the blood to be effective in your life. If, because it begins with an if, if we walk in the light. Does the word if mean a condition is here? Amen. Obviously. So you've got to deal with this. But if we walk in the light, what does that mean? If our walk is the walk that God shows us to walk in, he is light, isn't he? His word is a light into my path. In thy light we see light, the psalmist said. And the entrance of his word gives light. This is light is revelation of what God wants you to see. This is his way that he is showing you. And here's the condition. If we walk in that light, even as he is the light, what happens? The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And verse 9 says, if we confess our sin, because it's not like you're sin-proof, because as long as you're breathing, you are capable of sin. You shouldn't, and you're not supposed to. And you're not to rely on, well, I can always be forgiven, not necessarily. But he said, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and do what? Cleanse us. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is what he said. But again, in verse 7, he says, we have to walk in the light. Let me ask you all a question, because you're thinking, people, what if we don't walk in the light? What if we assume on God, I've been baptized, I spoke in tongues, I raised my hands, I dance, I give. Is there any substitute for the word? No. All those things I mentioned are good things because the Bible teaches that. But if you're relying on that, and that's it, then you're no different from those who observe the law but without a heart for it. Their hearts are far from me. But he said, if we walk in the light as he is the light, then, he said, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins. We're not looking to sin and get rid of you know. just say, I'm sorry. We're trying to live right. Occasionally, we have one of those days, one of those moments, and you, oh... You know, Peter had those days. I'm sure John had those days. Many of the apostles had those days. It's not like we're perfect in that we can't sin or don't ever sin. Again, we're not supposed to, but if we're living the life he's giving us to live, we will recover because we will repent. We will have the assurance in our heart that we've been forgiven and we won't struggle with being forgiven because this goes with the walk. Of living the way he wants us to live. But it says there plainly about the blood of Jesus, that it cleanses us from all sin. In First Peter chapter one and verse eighteen, it says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. What were we cleansed from? Sin. What was sin? Though your sins, Isaiah said, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as wool. What can take away my sin? I'll ask you, what can take away my sin? Now we sound like a little Catholic church, don't we? That's true, though, isn't it? Should we not have that embedded in our heart? I'm free, redeemed how I love to proclaim it, the blood of the lamb. That's how I've been forgiven. On the basis of that shed blood, I've been forgiven. Now, some people said, "And where do you all get the idea that there's power in the blood? Why do you all plead the blood of Jesus? People have challenged us. I've been challenged there before. It's not much of a challenge. But they say, where in the Bible do you find that you can plead the blood against the devil? Some of you folks drive down the road and before you get to the grocery store, you plead the blood three times. You know, cars driving down the road, dog in the side of the road, a kid riding a bike, it's the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, blood of Jesus. Where do you get that? Where does that come from? So let me ask you a question. How do we see power in the blood? We know it forgave us of our sins, so there's something about that. But turn to Leviticus to begin with. Leviticus chapter 17, where it really explains what this is all about in the first place. Leviticus chapter 17, our scriptural basis for power in the blood. Verse 10. And whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn among you that eateth any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood and will cut him off from among his people. Now, does God have something to say about eating meat with blood in it? Now, can you get all the blood always and every way out of meat? I don't know. I don't know, but I know, as he said, you don't eat The blood. Why is that? Well, let's go on. That's strange. Verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Do you know where blood came from? You know the first time there was ever blood in a human being? You know what was causing blood? God made Adam in his likeness and in his image. Remember that? He made a form. Then what did God do to it? It was just a lifeless form until he breathed into it. And what happened to Adam? He became a living soul. That would mean that Adam became a living soul because blood began to flow in this man. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. So blood is a spiritual thing. It's a physical thing too. But what we're talking about here is our weapons of our warfare. Blood is the result of the Spirit of God breathing into a clay figure. And when Adam began to live, he had blood in his body. In fact, the first death took place because of the shedding of blood. The first atonement took place when Adam and Eve were accosted in the garden. Adam said, I hid myself because I was naked. And God said, who said you were naked? Have you sinned? Have you eaten of the tree? And he found out, he said, well, Eve did it. Eve is a serpent. He did it. So he started there, and he went to Eve, and he came to Adam. Then I think it's in Genesis 3 or somewhere towards the end of that chapter, he says, then God brought skins and covered them. Who had the skins? Where'd the skins come from? They came from living creatures. An innocent animal had to die to cover another man's sins. It's the first picture you have in the Bible about an atonement being made, a covering being made for a guilty man. It was the blood of an innocent lamb. I don't think he said it was a bull hide or anything he put on them. I assume it were lamb's skins. But the life of the flesh is in the blood. And at the end of verse 11, he said, the blood makes an atonement for the soul. Now, because the life of flesh is in the blood, and because life comes from God, it is not to be eaten by man. That's just what he said. In fact, whenever the church started, the Judaizers were trying to put the new church under the legal code of the law, which they couldn't keep themselves they determined in Acts 15 at the council, just tell them not to eat blood. Not to eat blood and so forth. When I was in Louisiana a few years ago, there was a fellow down there that wanted me to, I was in Lake Charles, he wanted me to eat some boudin. I don't either, but he said, you want some boudin? I said, what is that? What's boudin? And I found out that boudin is a sausage that they stuff in a gut. <laughs> The people that eat it could kind of hold that sausage there. They say it's good. Then they had one called the blood boudin, and it's the same sausage, but they pack it with blood. It made me sick when he was telling about it, but he said, it's a delicacy down here. So we stopped at a traffic light once going somewhere, and I was talking to him and just looked over the other car, and there was this girl. He was yanking hard on this bloody-looking thing, and I said, is that blood boudin? He laughed. He said, yep, it is. As slow as I am, you couldn't catch me to eat that stuff. <laughs> For one reason, scripturally, I don't think we should. I know this is Old Testament, but I think God made such a point of it here that as far as I'm concerned, I would want to avoid that. You know, the butcher that comes out to our farm and over the years and butchers steer, uh, they always come out and they shoot the thing and it falls down and immediately while it's on the ground, they take their knife and they cut its juggler and enormous amount of blood comes out of those animals. I don't know if they do it for scriptural reasons or not, but that's a good point. Because we're not supposed to eat anything that's got blood in it because the life of the flesh is in the blood. Somebody told me once, if your blood is healthy, you're healthy. And if your blood is flowing well, then you're doing well. Verse 14, it is the life of all flesh. The blood of it is for the life thereof. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, You shall not eat blood of no manner of flesh, for the life of all flesh is the blood thereof. So one of the reasons that there is power in the blood is because the blood that was in Jesus was holy blood. The life that Jesus had had to be divine life, not only because he was of two natures. He was the son of man, he was the son of God. God was in Christ, reconciled the world to himself, and he was called the second Adam. You know, he had flesh and blood just like you do. But in Acts 20, you might want to just go back to the book of Acts for just a moment and see what it says there when Paul was speaking to those elders at Ephesus, what he said to them about this blood. Acts 20 and verse 28. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God. Don't entertain them. Feed the church of God, which he purchased how? Let me ask you something. What effect did the shedding of holy blood from a holy lamb do to the empire of the devil? It broke all his power to hold fast Christians. Because by the shedding of blood, and that apparently here, it was the blood of God. Did it say he purchased with his own blood? I would say it was holy. Wouldn't you? That's what it says. There was power in his body. There was power in his life. Everything about him was power. And the blood that Jesus shed was the blood that when it was shed, we were forgiven for all of our sins because God not only accepted the life, but as he spilled his blood and his life flowed out of him, that blood redeemed us. It was a signal that God has redeemed his people. I even believe that the Bible speaks about in Ephesians chapter 9 and verse 12 that he offered his blood in heavenly places. Our sin went all the way to there. We were redeemed. You know, that's a different theological story, but it appears that he did carry his blood into the holy place in the heavenlies. Hebrews 9 is a great chapter about the blood of Jesus, the power of the blood, and the effect of this power of the blood in Hebrews 9. And you could spend a long time studying on that chapter. It just says that there was power in the blood. The life of the flesh was in the blood. And if you look in Hebrews 9 and verse 22, it says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission. There's no pardon. There's no deliverance. There's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. So it had to be shed. It had to be shed. And without it, we wouldn't be delivered from our sins. Albert Barnes, in his commentary, wrote this about Hebrews 9 and verse 22. These words, it is universally true that sin never has been and never will be forgiven except in connection with and in virtue of the shedding of blood. It is on this principle that the plan of salvation by the atonement is based, and on this that God in fact bestows pardon upon people. That his blood was precious, as Peter wrote. His blood is powerful. We sing the song. His blood destroyed all the power that the devil had over mankind and he shed his blood at the cross among other places. And that was once and for all a death-dealing blow to the devil. He did that. Now there's power in the blood. Let me tell you why I plead the blood. For those who out there may ask you the same question, you could tell them that if you want to. I plead the blood of Jesus in my life against demonic things or things the devil is trying to do because of what I read in Exodus 12. Remember the story of the Passover? Turn to Exodus 12. You'll like it. In Exodus chapter 12, the people are getting ready to leave Egypt, which is a type of the world. And this was the instructions that God gave in Exodus 12. At the end of verse 3, there should be a lamb... For the house, every man shall take a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. We could make something of household salvation here, but we'll leave that aside. And verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish. Was Christ without blemish? All right. And on the 10th day of this month, you shall acquire a lamb. On the 10th day, you get a lamb, you find the lamb. On the 14th day, you're going to sacrifice the lamb, but in the four days you've got this lamb, you've got to examine him. Make sure he's without blemish, that he's perfect. No discoloration, no spots, no abnormalities in this lamb. This lamb was to be examined just like Jesus before his crucifixion by the Pharisees and and by the Sadducees and by the lawyers who questioned him. It's an interesting story. Right before the cross, all these people came against him. And they examined him, but they couldn't find any flaw in him. They never could. So you've got this lamb in the house, and you do all this examination. Of course, by this time, the kids are playing with it. And it buys and sleeps with the little ones, and it becomes a little pet. And you get very attached to it. Then the word sacrifice takes on a new meaning because now you're giving up something you've come to love. You've got to let go of it because your redemption is in this lamb. He goes on to say, verse 6, on the 14th day, you shall kill it in the evening. I assume that's when Jesus died on the cross because they had to take him down before the sun went down before the Sabbath day and bury him. Verse 7, and they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses where they shall eat. Okay, let's say we're in this little room here. This is our little house back here, me and my family. You kill this lamb. Of course, it makes terrible noises, and the children are crying. You kill the lamb, and you got to catch the blood, because he said you got to sprinkle this blood. So you've got to have some way to catch the blood. While this lamb, the life is going out of the lamb, you're holding it, and you're catching this blood. It's a gory mess. Then you take hyssop, and you go out here, and you mark the blood on this side of the door, and you mark it on this side, and you mark this blood like that. It's not painted. It's just up there. And... Just as the blood was prominent in the giving of the law and the testaments, and they sprinkled it on the people, they sprinkled it on the word, they sprinkled it on the altar, they sprinkled it on the ark, the blood was sprinkled everywhere. Everything had to be cleansed somehow with blood. There was much significance in the blood and the meaning of it to God as he passes it on to us. Now, we've got blood sprinkled on these doorposts that came from this lamb. And verse 12 For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, whether in Jewish homes or in Egyptian homes. I'll smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And verse 13, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are, And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where we get the word Passover. I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Now, what kept the destroyer out? You see, verse 23, it's not like God was going to smite people. He said, I'll smite them. But in verse 23, the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood... Upon the lintel and upon the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow or suffer the destroyer to come into your house or smite you. Now, I believe there is a divine principle here about the blood of Jesus. We're not in Egypt, and we're not killing lambs anymore. A lamb has been slain for us, never to be slain again. For that one lamb that was slain takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist said that. But what we have from the blood that he shed was that he came to destroy the works of the devil, but he had to die in order for that to happen. And when he died, that blood was the ransom price to get you and I out of the hole. And the picture is when we cover ourselves with the blood, thinking back to that Exodus 12 experience, this is what kept the destroyer out of their homes. I want him out of my house too. I don't want him in my house. I don't want anything in my house that would attract the devil. I don't want signs and symbols. I don't want Mickey Mouse Donald Duck T-shirts. I don't want Budweiser shirts. I don't want whatever. I don't want junk in my house that is of the devil. See how narrow it is? Because I believe that anything you bring in your house that symbolizes something else that is not of God, you bring a spirit in your house. So how could that be? Well, y'all have time to look over there in Deuteronomy seven. Will you do that for a moment? Deuteronomy seven. Deuteronomy seven. These things have been hidden from most church people so long that it just sounds strange. The last two verses of Deuteronomy seven. The graven images of their gods shall you burn with fire. I'd even say a four-leaf clover deserves to be burned. Because it's a charm is an amulet. It's something that is supposed to bring you good luck. Christians don't need luck. Right. The graven images of their God shall you burn with fire. Thou shalt not desire the silver or gold that is on them, how much you paid for them, nor take it unto yourself, lest you be snared therein or buy the thing. For it is an abomination to the Lord thy God. Neither shalt thou bring an abomination where? Let me suggest to you that you need to find out what is an abomination. Whatever is not of God, I know how this must sound to some people, there are things that attract demons, like crystals, and certain things that people worship, you know, like pyramids and things of that sort that people have made some mystery and mysterious attraction to the devil out of. Crystal balls. You heard of a crystal ball? I see. No, you don't see, the devil sees. These things attract spirits. That little eight ball, and you shake it and you ask it a question. Will I be cute when I get big? And it says no. (laughs) And then you have a bad day. Do you really think that's God? But then why do people do this? Why do they attract themselves to Ouija boards or, you know, to quit eating so much you get hypnotized? That's the devil. I mean, that's demonic. The book about all that stuff you bring into your house becomes a snare to your home. People look at you like you're crazy. I'm not crazy. Been many, many years I've seen so much of these things. I've seen people bring dolls, certain kinds of dolls into their home, and their kids started having nightmares. Because there's a spirit in this thing. I said that to somebody once. They said, I guess you got to start getting up in the middle of the night and doing combat with the devil. Done it many times. I'd like to think that through all these years, you've not only learned his ways but been clever about how he comes in and you shut the door to him and you don't have to fight like you used to because he doesn't get in there like he used to. Because our eyes have been opened to see things we had never seen before. Our preachers never taught us this. Who taught my parents? Who set the Christian church down where I belonged to many years ago? And what preacher showed us these things or declared these things to us? We didn't know any better. My mother's family were full of superstitions. My mother charmed warts. She'd tie a knot in a string, rub it on a wart, and go buried. it. She said, when the string rots, the wart will go away. And it usually did. But that wasn't God's way of doing it. And because it wasn't God's way, you've opened yourself up to a spirit. Now look at all the demonic activity in my family tree. In fact, when Bonnie and I first got our eyes open about the faith life, that is how to apply what we've heard against all this stuff, it's faith. I remember she said that night we came home from this meeting in 1969. She said, we've been robbed. We have been robbed our whole life. We've been denied truth. Nobody's told us these things. We engaged this stuff, went to those places, wore that stuff, acted like that. We didn't know any better. Nobody ever told us. You think of the whole Christian world for centuries. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Or as Isaiah said, they have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. And even with those who supposedly are learning, they're getting overwhelmed too because they're not paying attention. You know what? Somebody's going to get this. Somebody somewhere is going to be alerted to their need for this word, and they're going to pay the price, whatever they have to do to get it, and they're going to walk in it. And when you learn, like he says here, this is not even about the blood tonight, but he said in verse 26, Neither shall you bring an abomination in your house, lest you be a cursed thing like it, but thou shalt utterly detest it, thou shalt utterly abhor it, for it is a cursed thing. I've seen and known many people to go through their house to start cleaning their house of all the coloring books their children had with all of these demonic emblems in it and clowns and stupid stuff in them that kids like to color. I was in Ecuador somewhere back in my past. One day we were at a place called the center of the earth for lines crossed, and there was an old temple there, and it was just a viewing place now, and they built on this one spot, this little museum-like, and you walk in, it goes around in a circle, and you walk all the way to the top, and you get to the top, you come back down, and along the walls, all the way up, are all the things they got out of the jungles where the native people were, and all the things that exemplify the indigenous people in the area there. I remember walking by this one spot, looking at all these bones and knives and spears and buckets and jugs, and there was a clown. My buddies who went with me can verify this. There was a clown. I'm talking about Ronald J. McDonald. I'm not exaggerating. It came out of the jungle. Came out of the jungle. And I walked by there and I said to the girl, and she called it a little god, a little god. And they worshiped that stuff. It was something. It represented an entity, something that they looked to or hoped in. Besides, they didn't know who the true God was. I told my buddies, Brother was. I said, that's a clown just like back home at McDonald's. That's a clown, a little white clown. It looked just like him. You know, like it enough that you knew it was a clown. And I think, you know what the devil has deceived generations and countries and nations. Doesn't the Bible say the whole world lieth in darkness? He deceiveth in Revelation. He deceiveth the whole world. And when we come back and tell people, here's the hard part, when you come back and tell people, get rid of your clowns. You just paid 30 bucks for one for your grandkid. Get rid of them get rid of that. Man, what's wrong with you? You're spooky. So People don't give heed to that, or Raggedy Ann dolls and, and some of the stuff that I've heard about that, and they think it's pretty cute. The kids hug it and go to sleep with it. I got some testimonies in there about parents who heard about this and wrote me back, some pretty wild testimonies about what they were going through until they got a Raggedy Ann doll out of their house, and how everything changed, and they took authority over it. I renounce this in Jesus' name, and do the things that you're entitled to do as a Christian. And brought peace back in their home. The devil doesn't care if you're ignorant. If he can bring something in your house, a four-leaf clover, just to get you to admire it. well, his grandma's granny had it. Oh, it must be worth $500, and it hangs in a prominent place. Or that totem pole you bought when you, when you tripped to out west somewhere, that Indian totem pole. Or that little chubby Buddha that you got when you went to the Orient. Did you know those things attract spirits? They really do. I can't believe you got me off that far off where I was going with the blood of Jesus, but you did. It's your fault. But anyway, we've been delivered from all of these things the devil's doing. They should have no right to us unless we give it to them. But the power of the blood of Jesus, I find in Exodus 12, the power that kept the destroyer out of Egypt, I plead. When we go on trips and by not going trips, I plead that over my car, over our lives, pleaded over my home, everything that belongs to me, and that I usually throw in, and over all my children, that we're under the blood and not the curse. Because if you are not under the blood, redeemed by the blood, you are under a curse. I wish I could say, well, you're in the middle. You're either in or you're out. You're either with it or without it. You're either up or down, good or bad. There's two choices in life. And the power that's in the blood, at least to me, this is where I go for my authority. When God sees the blood, when you verbally use the blood, he'll pass over. Verbally, yeah. Turn to Revelation 12, verbally. For it tells here how they overcame. Revelation chapter 12, in the last days, in the day that we're in. Revelation 12 and verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, what does that mean? What well, it means what it said. They overcame him by their conscious awareness and faith in the power of the blood against the powers of darkness, and they verbalized that with their words. They spoke what they believed. What they believed about the blood of Jesus, they spoke it, which is why we say, as some of us anyway, the blood of Jesus I know what the Bible says There's a lot more than what I've told you about the blood of Jesus. Your conscience is purged by the blood of Jesus. Many things are purged by the blood of Jesus. You know this, you're aware of this, and so you begin to speak the blood of Jesus. And as my experience has been, God has honored that. Many a car is straightened up, a lot of people didn't fall off a roof, car didn't destroy. I mean, the blood of Jesus has kept a lot of us with wonderful testimonies that we were spared from something. Just as there is power behind the works of darkness, there is power behind the word of God. And when you speak with your mouth what the Bible declares about his blood, because you believe in his protective, mighty power, his redemptive power, it works for you too. Now, if somebody says, well, I don't believe that, well, then it won't work for you. It just doesn't work. But if it doesn't work for you, don't get mad if it works for me. Now, how many times, speaking of Jesus, how many times did Jesus shed his blood before he died on the cross? Did Jesus shed his blood once at the cross, or did he shed it several times? First of all, when he went to the garden. What does the Bible say in the garden? Great drops of blood mingled with the sweat, fell to the ground. We'd call that extreme stress today. The writer of Hebrews says, you have not struggled against sin. You know, you look at Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our face, lest you be worried and faint in your mind, and consider him who resisted unto the shedding of his blood. What was going on in the garden was a lot in the Bible about the tension that was there, the decision that was being made, and it was such a struggle that the Bible says that his first shedding of blood was in the garden. Then he was brought before Pilate, and several things happened in that time element. There, one, he was scourged. John 19. He said he was scourged. Now that's a pretty rough thing to be scourged. That's to be beaten over the back and wherever else those things land on your side. And they called it a cat of nine tails. It might have a little piece of bone in the end of these straps. And they would take your garment off, and they would haul off and hit you with that thing across the back. 39 lashes. It hurt really bad. I would say that he was bloody on his back. I would say he shed his blood twice so far. How about when they plucked his beard? Isaiah 50 and verse 6. Let me make sure that that's still in here. Isaiah 50 and verse 6. He said, I gave my back to the smiters and thy cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. Let me ask you a question. If you grabbed my beard, uh, it'd be tough tonight. But if I had a beard and somebody grabbed it and yanked real hard and pulled the hair out of my face, would it bleed? It really would. Fourthly, you know, Luke describes in chapter 22, verse 63, and the men that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face. Do you suppose if I was to hit you pretty good in the right spot with my hand, you'd bleed? What if I cut your face? Let me try it. Let me get somebody little. If you hit a person with your fist, would it bruise? If you hit him right, could you cut somebody or their mouth? Or your mouth bleeds easy, your teeth, your gums? They beat him. We like to think that he just stood there and gave a sermon. No. They plucked the hair out of his face. They spat on him. They mocked him. They put a robe on him. And then the fifth, didn't they beat those thorns on his head? Would thorns make you bleed? He bled again. I mean, there's still more blood. Isaiah 51 says his visage was so marred. He must have been beaten. He must have looked awful. His face, his back. No wonder he was weak in carrying that cross. He lost a lot of blood. He carried that cross up to the hill. And what did they do when he got to the cross? They put nails in his feet, put nails in his hand. Do you think that would bleed? That was six times. Was there another one? Was there a last time? Seven, they say, is a perfect number. Remember when he was on the cross to make sure he was dead? What did that guy do? Water and blood came out. That's where he started in the garden. That's where it ended. The agony that Jesus went through, all those hours of hanging on the cross, that time when the earth turned completely dark, and everybody knew this is the strangest most unique day in all of history, when Jesus died and his blood was spilled. It was God declaring that we have been redeemed at an awful price, and for us to live our lives so cheaply, so indifferent to the things we heard, is to make a mockery of what he did. As I said earlier about one day, the truth and the impact of this has to hit your heart. At some point in our lives, hopefully before Jesus comes, the reality of what was done for us, the price that was paid for you, the awful death an innocent man gave and went through for our sins, for he was dying in our place. Had he not died, we would die. And while we would hate to be there and watch somebody get beat that way and mocked and spat on, put a robe on him, and then bowed down and mocked him. Whoa, the king of the Jews. This is terrible. But you would have to say, please, Jesus, finish this. Go through this. And him up there on the cross with those nails and him hanging there, and he just dying real slow, couldn't breathe, couldn't push up. It was a terrible moment. But it was done for you. It was done for me, that we might be here today. You know, I've been around a long time, watched a lot of people in my life, and I'm really coming to a time in my life where I'm really fed up with people who don't act like this means anything, who sort of pass it off as, you know, just church stuff. Because I'm telling you folks, not many are called, but not everybody's gonna be chosen, not everybody. And finally, let me close with this. I'll make it brief. Worship. Worship. Worship and praise is a weapon against the devil. Psalm 68 says, let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. How does God arise? God inhabits praise. Praise. He inhabits praise. Does that mean that if we are worshiping here and we're giving God a sacrifice of praise, that it is sort of a throne that he dwells in? He inhabits praise. David instituted praise all hours of the day. Singers, musicians, that's all they did was worship and praise the Lord. They had groups. They did it like in sections. In two hours here, and another group come in, and they were constantly going on. Well-organized worship and praise. In fact, in Psalm 68, there are three words that he used there about this praise. One was, be glad. This is in verse 3. He said, let all those be glad. The word "salmiak" is a word which means to rejoice, to brighten up, to be joyful. Is that you? I'm just the poor. Okay. He said, let them rejoice. The word rejoice means to be jubilant, to be jubilant. Actually, it could mean to jump for joy. I will enter his courts with thanksgiving in my heart. When's the last time we did that? How many times for how many years have we been shown this and said and talked about this? And yet, when's the last time we consciously did it? Joyful. Exceedingly joyful is the word which has to do with being cheerful. Cheerful. I know in whom I have believed. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty if he's worshipped. And one thing I'll guarantee you, the devil hates and he has been extremely successful in subduing is worship. He's caused a lot of people to put their hands in their pocket, mumble a few words of a song, and go home without ever really giving a sacrifice, to pray, a worship to God. And if we get used to doing that, then we're going to lose something. Because that's not the way God wants us to come before him. That's not the way we're supposed to do it. And when he comes to the devil and praise, put on the garment of praise for Well, how's that song go, put on the garment of praise for what? So if there's a spirit of heaviness, the weapon against it is the garment of praise. How do you get praise? Praise comes from you. It's a decision you make. It's a choice that you make. Remember when King Saul, the demon came on him? 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord... Troubled him. That means that God allowed an evil spirit to trouble him. Saul was no longer at peace, was he? Saul was no longer happy. Saul was no longer cheerful. There was no gladness in Saul, but he was troubled like Martha by so many things. He wouldn't do anything about it. He didn't know what to do, but here's what it said. Here's what your Bible says. In verse 15, and Saul's servant said unto him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God troubles you. Let our Lord now command thy servants, which are before thee, to seek out a man who is a cunning player on a harp, and it shall come to pass when the evil spirit from God is upon thee, that he shall play with his hand, and thou shall be well. Is that possible? Saul said, find him. So they found David. They went out and they found him. In verse 23, it says, And it came to pass when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took a harp and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Why did the evil spirit depart? Because little David, play on your harp. Hallelujah. That used to be a song. David began to play on his harp. You know, he wasn't going boom, 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 boom. He was playing songs to the Lord. As he did, the devil couldn't stay. Look at chapter 19 in closing. Chapter 19 verse 9. And the evil spirit was upon Saul. And as he sat in his house with his javelin in his hand, and David played with his hand, Saul tried to kill him. Now, that's what the devil does when you don't deal with him. Eventually, he takes over. And that's what happened to Saul. You see, the devil hates praise. The devil hates praise. He hates worship. He hates for you to drive and listen to praise. He'd rather you listen to all that ignorant nonsense on there. He'd rather people listen to that than to listen to something. Thy loving kindness. Or listen to some of these trashy programs that teach you nothing but to be critical. To find fault with people. You'd be much better off spiritually if you just listen to Christian music. If you can find it, you'll have to buy a tape and put it in your car or a disc. But you'd be far better off letting your mind listen to that and learn words and just sing as you're going along than you would to some of this trash. The devil hates worship. I've seen the devil leave people before when we just stood around, having done all that we knew to do, just sit and say, praise the Lord, the blood of Jesus, and just start speaking the things that we have learned and see if people get well. Now, I've learned that. You'll have to learn that yourself. But you have authority from Christ. If you'll use it, God will set you free. Read it. Listen to it. Meditate on it to get it down in your heart. Ponder deeply with all your heart what these things are about. Memorize the words so you can quote it. And then finally... Speak it. And get yourself and your family, your life free. Amen. In the name of Jesus. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness. I ask you, Lord God, only you can do this. I ask you for your grace and your mercy in giving us light and meaning of this word. That's your work, Lord. This is what your Holy Spirit does. And without that, we're empty. We're empty. So I ask you to bless your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? We'll sing a song and then we'll go. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Thanks for the blood. The blood of Calvary. Thanks for the blood. The blood that sets me free. Thanks for the blood. Your blood, thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for bleeding. Thank you, Spirit, for leading me to the blood. Thanks for the blood, the blood of Calvary. Thanks for the blood, the blood that sets me free. Thanks for the blood. Thanks for your blood. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah! Praise God. Hallelujah. Father, set us free. Set us free. Make us to want to be free. To live like we've been set free. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I ask you to bless these folks as we leave this building tonight, as we go home. Make them aware and conscious of what you've said. Not what I've said, but what you've said to them. Quicken us, O Lord, by your word, by your spirit, that we might be strong and bring glory to you. I ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen.